Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel. We are back in our series, The King We Need, and we find ourselves at the end of chapter 4, which is just a, I don't want to say fantastic by way of adjective, but a really eye-opening text in the scriptures, a really um, interesting story and account of what has happened to Eli and the children of Israel in their journey. Uh, so we'll find ourselves in chapter 4 there, picking up, and uh, took a, a break last week, and so I'll kind of give you the recap of where we were uh, a few weeks ago as we begin. Um, but it's good to be together. It's good to be together as a church family. It's good to be together around God's Word, and so I just encourage you in that, continue in that, um, that we can be faithful as a people of God around the Word. And in that light, I want to say this affirmation together that we're a community that believes the Bible is the truth of God and that the Spirit enlightens us about the truths of God that we may know God. In fact, I listened to a message recently that, um, that was talking about preaching. I don't, I'm not getting off track totally here, but uh, talking about preaching, the importance of preaching, just coming to the, the gathering of the saints, and you can hear a lot of things from the pulpit, but what we need to hear is from God. And that's what we need. We don't need fancy preaching and stories. We need to hear God's voice. And so that's what we believe when we come together around the word. And so let's say this affirmation together if we believe it. Our pursuit is by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the word of God. To our souls, or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the king into eternity. I'm going to read from verse 12 through 22, and um, it's, as always, I, I love the Old Testament narratives, and I would just say, if this is a new account or story to you as I read this, just try to really picture, envision what is happening in, in this, uh, this story as Eli is met with this man who's told them about the destruction and that the children of Israel has come and uh, has happened and that the ark of God has been captured. This is what it says in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who comes from battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her, her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory 
has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. A sobering story of the people of God when the presence of God has vanished. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word and do ask that as we work through this text, uh, a historical moment in the nation of Israel, um, an important moment for all of us, it's relevant today, that we desire your glory to be very present. And so, Father, speak to us, reveal yourself to us, that we may never experience something like this. And God, I just pray that you'd soften our hearts now that we would hear your voice clearly and do what it says. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Uh, I'll, I'll have you, if you want, I'm going to butcher this story, but uh, you can write down because it's a funny thing later. Uh, there's a Christian comedian, Tim Hawkins, and you should look up his little bit on that's the worst. You should really do that. That should be how you spend your Sunday afternoon. Tim Hawkins, that's the worst. Look it up. But in this, this bit, in his comedy bit, he talks about his teenage daughter kind of poking fun at her. And I guess she was in uh, the car with her mom and she was complaining about her friends not being at the mall and she had to wait a long time. And she said this phrase, she said, that's the worst. And so Tim Hawkins does this bit where he goes on, really? That's the worst. That's the worst thing when you're a teenager and have to wait for your friends to show up at the mall. And he proceeds to tell stories, funny stories about even the Chilean miners when they were buried and without oxygen and water. And, and he said, you know what? This is bad. But you know what's really bad? When you have to wait for your friends at the mall and they're not there. And he said, and he has this, this thing where he goes, that's the worst. And he keeps talking about that's the worst. And so we come to a text like this, and I ask this question, what is the worst thing? When we say that, we joke about it, that's the worst, that's the worst. Oh yeah, well, I got one better. The worst thing, you know what the worst thing is? The worst thing is life without God. That's the worst. This year has been tough. This pandemic has been interesting to say the least. Our challenges in our own lives have been unique. We never see what's coming fully. We never know what the Lord is going to bring into our life. But you know the very worst thing is not physical death. The worst thing is life without God. That's the worst. In fact, I've said it to people often when I hear this word, devastating. There are things that happen in our life and things that are happening in your life that are very challenging. But I've never liked the word devastating for the believer. And the reason why is because I don't think anything is really that devastating. It's reserved for me, at least, use of that word to one thing, and that's life without God. That's the worst. That's devastating. All the things that we face are hard, and they're confusing, and they're frustrating, and they're painful, and they're burdensome, but they're not devastating for the one who knows Christ Jesus as their Lord. That's not devastating. Devastation comes when there is no hope and the glory and presence of God is gone. And that's what's happened in this text. Some have called this the most tragic account in Scripture because the, the, the heart behind it just leaps off the page to read this. And that's why I say all of us should just pause when we hear a story like this. Something bad has happened and it's not just a drama unfolding. Eli is trembling because the presence of God is gone. 
So much so that he falls over dead and his daughter-in-law falls over dead because the ark of God has been captured and the glory of God is gone. That should cause all of us to pause and look at a text like this with some seriousness. And I'll work through it as we, we go on this morning. You see got Eli here uh, picking up from where we've left off in the past. Eli is the priest in Shiloh. And young Samuel is being raised in the Lord and he's growing in the wisdom and stature of the Lord and he's serving the Lord. And Eli's time is coming to an end. So much that we've seen throughout the story that he wasn't spiritually discerning enough with Hannah. He couldn't figure out that she was crying out to God for a son. Eli has lost his way. His two sons are in the temple at Shiloh taking counterfeit offerings, stealing, not the offerings were counterfeit, but them themselves were counterfeit. They're taking offerings for themselves, that which belonged to God. They're making the temple a disgrace. They're wicked men, and Eli sits by, and he knows all of it, and he does nothing. And now you have Eli at the end of that. His sons have this wild idea in battle in the chapter, the previous text before, that they are losing to the Philistines. So let's go grab the Ark of God, because maybe, even though they haven't honored him in their life, maybe he'll help us now, right? Do we do that a lot? Maybe when we don't pay attention to God, we don't give him any glory, we don't do anything that he desires for us in obedience, but maybe when we really need him, let's go grab the ark of God and bring it into the battlefield because he'll help us. And they learned quickly that the Philistines overtook them because God had already left. And there they are. And so Eli's sitting at the gate at the beginning of this text, and he's waiting back at the gate. Now Shiloh is about 22 miles away from where this took place, this battlefield. So you got this guy, it says in verse 12 there, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. That's why it says it that way. It's a long journey that he runs back having his clothes torn and dirt on his head, which was the sign of, of grief and lament and defeat and all of this stuff because a tragedy had happened in Israel. And when he arrived, there Eli is sitting at his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled at the ark of God. Why is Eli sitting there? Why is Eli sitting there? Because he knows something bad is happening. And he's waiting. And you have to picture an old man who is blind and heavy, it says in the text, is waiting there for the worst news to come true. Because he just knows. He's an old man who has lived a life full of regret now that he didn't do something about the ark. He didn't take care of the ark of God. And here he sits, an old and heavy man. And Eli, in verse 14, he says, heard the sound of the outcry. He says, what's the uproar? Then the man hurried and he said, now Eli, 89 or 98 years old rather, and his eyes were set. We said that he had become blind. He had been lacking perception spiritually, but now he's physically blind so that he could not see. You can almost picture him, right? A, a life that I hope none of us live. Here's an old man who cannot see, living full of regret, trembling at the ark of God being taken, his heart trembling before God because he has now realized what he has done. And the man said to Eli, I am he who comes. How did it go? Now that's an interesting question. Again, Eli knows what's happened here. He's not really asking like what happened in the battle, even though Eli could not see the grief of the man with the torn robe and the dirt on his head, he could probably feel it like you and I don't need to see certain things to feel it. How did he go? 
how did it go, my son? He brought the news, and, and he said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. Now, this would have been a battle that the people of God should have won, right? So that's bad. There has also been a great defeat among the people. That is also bad. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. That is also bad. But the last part is the worst. And the ark of God has been captured. And it says this in verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, picture this, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. Now, you and I can look at that and say, well, he fell over. It was just a coincidence because he was old and he was heavy and he fell. No. Did he care about the battle? Yes, he cared about it. But was that the worst? That wasn't the worst. Did he care about losing his two sons who were wicked and God had actually prophesied that wickedness, that for that wickedness, punishment was going to come to his house? That was bad. But when he heard about the ark of God, that's the worst. And he fell over. Now, it's interesting in the Hebrew word, the letters for heavy are K-B-D, and I want you to bank that. K-B-D, the Hebrew word for that word heavy is used to, to describe this attitude of honor, weight, or burden. And it says that Eli was heavy. Now, we could say he was a bigger, larger man. We know that he didn't take care of himself spiritually, probably didn't take care of himself physically either. That's how life happens when the glory and presence of God departs. You start to lose your way and, and all kinds of chaos breaks loose in your life. But that word there describes worth or honor or heaviness. And we can think of it this way by choice of the author's usage there that Eli had this weight and burden that only God could fix. And he knew. He knew that when you depart from God's glory and presence, bad things happen. And that is why he is this old, blind, heavy man living full of regret for choices he did not make to take care of the ark. Now, what was the ark? The ark of the covenant was what God had established after he delivered the people from slavery and the exodus happened and he met with them in the presence of the tabernacle and set up the tent of meeting and he said, this is where I will make my presence known. The Ark of the Covenant, right? The Holy of Holies. And remember what was inside the Ark? There were three items inside the Ark. One was the tablet, the law. He said, put that in there, which reminds us that God's law is perfect and complete and good for us. He said, these are my laws. Write them on your hearts. Do them, instructing us and reminding us in his very presence that life with God is always going to have boundaries that are good for us. He set it up that way. His law is perfect. Whenever we go outside of that, that's when bad things happen. What else was in there? The staff of Aaron, right? That budded, signifying to us the very priestly, earthly priestly reign there, as Aaron was in the Levites, of Jesus. That life with God is this kingship submission to this kingship of when Jesus came, his lordship that we would submit to God, to his son Jesus Christ as a sovereign king. That he is a priest over us. And the last thing, what was it? It was the manna, right? He said, put the omer of manna in there. And those three things were in the jar. And what was the manna all about? God's provision, right? God's protection of the people through sustenance. And of course, foreshadowing the true bread of life in Jesus Christ. Those three things in the ark. And God said, that's where I'm going to meet with you. That's where my presence and my glory will be made known. 
You would think we would be wise to take care of that, inside of that signifying his law, his priestly reign, and his provision through manna. Of course, Jesus being the fulfillment and the bread of life. And it's almost as if to say to the people of Israel, take care of the ark, right? Take care of that in your life, the very glory and presence of God. And you see what's interesting, when the ark was gone in this account, that's what caused the devastation, right? But the glory of God didn't depart because the ark was gone, right? The ark was captured because the glory of God had already left. And that's what you and I need to glean from a text like this. That it wasn't because, like, oh, now that that thing's gone, it's, it had already left, now you're going to see through the next several chapters that it goes through this journey and the Philistines get nervous, nervous they'll end up returning. It tells us seven months, I believe, at the beginning of chapter six of how long this thing has been gone and it's going to be a focal point. But we have to know the glory and presence of God without that. That's the worst thing. In fact, so much that his daughter-in-law, picking up in verse 19, the wife of Phineas, one of these wicked men, hears about this Hearing the news that the ark of God was captured, she's pregnant, she's at the end of her pregnancy, saying that her pains came on so strongly. Not that she heard that her husband was dead. Again, just like like Eli, not that his sons, that that's what the news was. It says her pains came on so strong that she goes into labor. She Life, right, is present in this moment. She goes into labor and a son comes forth. There's life, there should be joy. But this heaviness of the moment is really rich in her life and heart right now. And it says she did not even answer or pay attention. As if the people around her, look, you have a son. This is exciting. This is what you long for. No, I'm going to name him Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. That's the worst thing. And she names him Ichabod, which I told you to bank that Hebrew word for heavy, KBD. It's actually a derivative, Ichabod, of that word, root, that KBD. You can almost say like kabid, Ichabod. Those words are related there. The heaviness and honor and weight of Eli's dynasty, gone. Everything that God had wanted and desired for the people of Israel, now gone. And everything he wants and desires for us, that's where we come to this story and say, what can we glean from a text like this? And I pray it's something that we we say, whoa, maybe this is something we ought to pay attention to, taking care of the ark, the presence and glory of God in our life. You see, all men are like Ichabod. Something's happened. Something's been broken. We know the the story of the gospel and the scriptures, right? God creates man and woman perfectly in the garden and gives them his law and gives them the boundaries and says, there's one tree. And man decides, you know what? I kind of want that. I'll go after that. And the relationship's broken and the glory of God is fractured. Not the glory of God fractured, but the idea of their relationship with man and God is fractured. And so desperately from that point on in the story is this desire to come back to the creator, right? Even as you see Moses desiring God's glory. Show me your glory. Wanting to restore. And all of us who sit in this state of like Ichabodness, if you will, this horrible state 
God says, one day, one day, one day, I'll return my glory to the earth. One day, one day. And who does he do that from? Or through, rather? His son, Jesus Christ. Comes to repair this broken mess. And he says, this on earth now, the glory of the Lord, present with us. Amazing. You and I take that for granted so often, that that event in human history, that the ark of God is where God met with people, and you and I get to come together as believers with the spirit inside us, and and we take that for granted. And these people of Israel had to go to this place and could never meet with God. It was always through a priest, and it was once a year, and God unfolds his presence and glory through one man, and you and I have access to that in the spirit, and we take it for granted. How often do you think about that, the glory of presence, the presence of God in your life? And when that departs, if that departs, that that would be the worst thing. You and I come to church and routine, and we, we go through life and routine. Have you ever stopped to tremble at what it would mean if the glory and presence of God was gone in your life? And Jesus Christ came for the Ichabods. God's very real and present glory coming to earth in the form of his son so that no more ark was needed. But what do you do? If many of us, and I know I I can relate to this text personally, in seasons of my life where I just do not feel the presence and glory of God. And the overwhelming weight of that is not about God having left. It's about me having left his presence. And so what do you do if you feel like that? If you feel like, man, I just don't know if my life is pursuing the glory and presence of God the way it ought to. This should be a moment, a checkpoint for us all when we come to a passage like this and say, what are we going to do about that? Because that sounds pretty serious. I don't want to be Eli sitting on the steps someday, looking back, knowing full well what has been missed and squandered. I want you to flip ahead if you have a Bible to Revelation 2. When I came to a text like this, I thought about this account that is given to John. And we know Revelation 2, Jesus, this vision of Jesus coming back and he goes towards the seven churches. And I'm just going to read some of this. It's not going to be on the screen. You can read along with it. But I just want to read some of this. What Jesus gives this vision in John as the seven churches. We're not going to go through all seven. We're going to use Ephesus as the example here. And I'll start in verse 4 of chapter 1, actually. And I'll kind of like skip ahead so you'll have to follow along. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and the seven spirits who are before his throne. So we just sang about that. Even so, come, right? Jesus is coming back someday. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to a kingdom, priests of God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and and even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Linking that everything in life has to do with the glory of God. And one day, all people, just like Eli knew that day, will be faced with what you did with the glory and presence of God. And it says this then, the vision comes in verse 9. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, gives uh, John, here's this vision from Jesus on the island of Patmos. And he goes forward, and in verse 12 he says, Then I turned and see this voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and I saw the seven 
golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white, like white wool like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, bronze revised in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Does that sound like the glory of God? When I saw him, look at this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the power of the glory of God. And John sees this vision of Jesus coming back in the glory and the presence of the Almighty, and he falls dead. And what does Jesus come to do? This vision of Jesus walking around these seven lampstands representing the seven churches. And here's what he says to the church in Ephesus. As he gives summaries of each of these churches, I've seen who you are, how you are, what you're doing, and this I have for you or this I have against you. And here's what he says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Pretty good, right? Faithful church, the glory of God present. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear. And what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Back to the glory of God. You see what's happening here? Jesus comes back to the churches, and he gives them these summaries. He who has an ear, let him hear. And he says, the glory of God is the best thing, and life without God is the worst thing. And if you're faithful and you trust in Jesus Christ the Son and you care about the glory and presence of God, then here's what the reward is. Now this isn't a sermon to scare us into like, well, are we even saved anymore? Like, can we lose our salvation? No, because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you are secure if you have trusted Christ by faith. But do we have seasons where we care little about the glory and presence of God? Yes. And there's the warning. I think we can do three things, and this is how I want to close, when we realize that the glory and the presence of God may have departed, if you will, from our lives. And the first one is to do this. Remember, it says there in Revelation 2, remember where you have fallen. You actually have to pause and think about this in your life. Do I care about what I've been given in Christ? Do I care about what God has given me, literally plucking me from death. The worst thing isn't physical death. The worst thing is spiritual death. And God has lifted us from that and given his glory and presence to us as a people of God. And when you move away from that, here's the warning. Remember where you have fallen. Is that not your greatest passion? To obey God? To follow his, remember the Ark of the Covenant, to follow the priest, the high king of heaven, 
and to remember the bread of life, Jesus, that all of sustenance comes from him and his name? Isn't that the thing that all of us should be after so we're not sitting as a 98-year-old man on the stoop waiting to hear the worst news? Isn't that the thing? Remember where you have fallen. And so that ought to cause us to tremble. The second thing is this, and it's clear as day in this text. In Revelation 2, in verse 5, repent and do the works you did at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. I'm going to get emotional about this. I've been through these seasons when you realize you don't have a good walk with the Lord. And they're scary seasons. When you watch habits and you watch your heart grow dim and weary, it's scary stuff. And most of us would sit here and say, man, I can, I, I can identify with that. And some of you might be identifying with that now. And I, I, I wanted to, to present this to you because I know how like heart-wrenching that can be. But I also know how powerful Satan can be and how defeating he can make it look. And we don't want to be like Eli, right? It's too late. But I'm here to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ, it's not too late. We're here today. You can, it's just like I said last week, you can, it doesn't matter where you were, it matters where you start. And, and it comes with remembering where we have fallen and then saying, I need to repent. And there's sin areas, there's habits that's been formed, there's this like apathy, and I think that's been created over this last year towards the things of God in some ways. Life has been so chaotic and frustrating in the world, our hearts have been wrenched with all this emotion and opinion and all this, like everybody's like up here, right? And it just gets so overwhelming that you're almost apathetic towards the things of God. Even the people that are really passionate in emotion are so full of like the wrong kind of emotion that we're not just still like we read last week. Be still and know that I am God. And to get to that space where you say, God, I want my heart to be so desiring like Moses. Show me your glory that that would never depart from my life. And if there's things in my life that I need to repent from, turn from, then that's what I want to do. I don't want it to be too late ever. And then here's the last thing, and this is the thing that I want you to take with you today. To take care of your ark. To remember the first works you did. In other words, to do this. What I mean by this, I created an acronym for ark, and it's this. It's going to be on the screen. The only thing I wanted on the screen today is your area of responsibility kept. The area of responsibility kept. And as a Christ follower, your area of responsibility is to grow your heart towards God in love and devotion with all your heart, soul, and mind. And to do whatever you can to point others towards Jesus Christ. Some of us in this room are parents, fathers, mothers. Are you keeping your area of responsibility that God has given you? Raising your kids spiritually. Or have you just gone like Eli and said, I'm not going to say anything about that. I'll just watch that all unfold. Are you keeping your area of responsibility in check in the life of your church body? 
Are you faithful to, to one another? Like I said last week of coming around each other, plugging in in such a way where I don't sit on a Sunday morning and just take, take, take. I invest in this body. I serve. And when you serve, do you do it with joy and excellence? Or is it just a thing you do? And here's what I mean by that. And I'm not going to go on some rant about volunteer ministry. But when you come into your ministry to serve, is it just something you've done for so long? Or when you do it, do you do it with such pride and excellence because it's for the glory of the Lord? Do you do it in such a way when you walk out of this building, whatever you do, that verse that's written right above the office space, I do it for the glory of God. That that is so prominent and pointed in my life that everything I want to do has to do with the glory and presence of God. I'm going to take care of my ark. If I'm a parent, I'm going to take care of my kids, pointing them towards Jesus. If I go to work Monday through Friday, whatever it is I do in my occupation, I'm going to take care of my ark. My area of responsibility will be kept. I want to please God and do everything for the glory of his name. If I come into a church body, I want to connect in such a way that I actually believe that God's called a group of people, the ecclesia, together as a people of God, that it's one to another. It's not just me on my own, coming here to a Sunday service. It's not a service. It's a gathering. You don't get served here. You gather to worship, to make it about the glory of God. I'm feeling another sermon coming on. <laughs> I'm looking at the clock. I got to stop. The people of God is your area of responsibility kept in that. If you find yourself in a state of life where you don't have a lot of others you're responsible for, are you keeping your ark cared for? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you in his word? Are you spending time in prayer? I could go on and on with example after example about how you could take care of your ark, but whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. With such a desire, like I've mentioned numerous times, like Moses, God, show me more of your glory. I want to see you I want to know you. And friends, if you don't have that and you get to the end of your life and you look back and you realize that all the things you thought were bad, that's not the worst. The worst is if you don't know Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior. For when this Revelation 2 thing happens and Jesus comes back and all will know and if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is that day. Tomorrow it could be too late. And that is all that we ought to be centered around in our life. God, I want your glory. I want your presence. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us the greatest gift in your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I personally met with this text and being in it all week, thinking about it and meditating on it. What a powerful account of when a life is not lived with you. And God, it ought to cause us to tremble as a people. It ought to cause us to make changes like remembering where we have fallen from. 
as we read in Hebrews earlier, not to harden our hearts, not to fall away. It ought to remind us to repent. We are a people who need continual repentance. Once for salvation, but as we grow in our sanctification, constantly running away from our sin and running towards you. God, that's not just a one and done thing. That's a life lived of genuine repentance and humility that we need to remember who we are and what you've saved us from. We are all like Ichabod. When we're born into this world, the glory is not there because of sin. And you, by your grace, give us Jesus Christ and make your presence and glory known. And God, do not let us take that for granted for those who know you. And God, by your grace, would you help us to get back and to remember our first love. God, I know that if people pray that today, you will do that. I know that. I've done it. And you've done it for me. You're so good and gracious and merciful in that way, but we need your help, God. And so I ask for everyone that's feeling that and uttering that prayer now to get back to where their first love was, that you would bring that to them, God, that they would pursue you with great and mighty passion. And God, if there is one that doesn't know you in this room, who even wonders if they know you, that they would fall on their knees in worship and bow to the King of Heaven and profess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. Life without you is the worst thing possible. God, may we glory in your name. May we praise you for all our days, and we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.